This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Neil Woodfine, growth manager from WIRE and organizer of Beijing Bitcoin Meetup. We discuss why the government of China has decided to ban cryptocurrency exchanges and ICOs and where it will go from here. Hi, Neil. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? Uh, not too bad, thanks. Uh, the sun's shining in Beijing, which is unusual, so that can't be bad. It's coming to the National Day, so the sky is most likely going to be blue soon, right? Exactly, yeah. We've probably got two or three weeks of this. And yes, I'm talking to Neil Woodfine, Growth Manager, WIRE, and Organizer of Beijing Bitcoin Meetup. So Neil, I have listened to a very interesting podcast episode that you have done with my friend John Edmund and Matthew Brennan on China Tech Talk about blockchain. And then subsequently, suddenly China started banning ICOs, which also become a very interesting conversation. That's why I want to get you on the show to talk about this. But before that, I want to get to know you better. How do you start your career? So I arrived in China first in 2004 on a gap year and then went to study Chinese, Leeds University in the UK for four years. Um, After graduating, I immediately came to China and started working in manufacturing. I started in fine dispersion machinery and then uh, moved through multiple different manufacturing companies before finally working in a cement consultancy in Nanjing. That was in 2013. So um, I had a lot of spare time, I'll be honest. And one of my friends recommended an article on Bitcoin and I saw the graph was going up. I didn't know anything else about it. I'd never invested in anything in my life, but decided to put a few pounds into Bitcoin. And that was when the price was about $190. And just before the price started pumping at the end of 2013, all the way to $1,200. So I was very proud of myself, having made a very shrewd investment decision, despite having not understood any of it, but then proceeded to learn as much as I could about Bitcoin and got completely hooked. I was working in the manufacturing industry, which is quite slow moving and interested in a change and decided that um, I had to do anything anything I could to get into the Bitcoin industry. So I ended up joining OKCoin, doing uh, business development and managing institutional accounts. And that was uh, my my entry into uh, the Bitcoin industry. And OKCoin is one of the three largest Bitcoin exchanges in China, right? That's right. So at the time, OKCoin was the largest Bitcoin exchange by a large margin. It was probably the biggest Bitcoin exchange in the world. Its two other competitors were Huobi and BTCC. But at the time, it was winning that race. So you eventually also set up a company called RemitC. I hear the context behind how you set up this company. Can you talk a little bit about RemitC and subsequently how you end up joining the company Wire? That's right. So while I was at OKCoin, I became good friends with a guy called Richard Bensberg, who was compliance director at OKCoin. Both of us had similar backgrounds in terms of studying Chinese at Leeds and coming out and working in industry before getting hooked on Bitcoin. So we got on quite well. Both of us were interested in trying to use Bitcoin to solve real world problems rather than this circular economy, which is developed around Bitcoin, where Bitcoin businesses are servicing other Bitcoin businesses and Bitcoin users. We wanted to use Bitcoin to solve problems outside of that industry. And we realized that businesses were having multiple problems 
paying money to China. And we thought using Bitcoin as a rails to convert foreign currencies into renminbi would be a really good use case. We started a company called Remitzi, and that was helping SMEs outside of China make payments to their suppliers inside of China. And then also we branched into doing lots of other kind of API payments for platforms and freelancers, that kind of thing. So we did that for two years, built up a, a pretty good user base. We're exploring investment opportunities. Then we got in contact with Wire and acquisition talks started very quickly. And eventually the decision was made to um, sell the company to Wire and, and join the team there. So that happened in April this year. We've been with them for about uh, five or six months now, and it's been going great. We've kind of merged both companies' technologies. We've brought all of our customers across and just kind of combined forces. It's going really well. So what's your current role and coverage in Wire? So I'm a growth manager, which basically means I focus my time on trying to grow the Chinese market. One of the areas that we're working in is helping Amazon merchants, Chinese Amazon merchants, repatriate US dollars, pounds and euros back to China, purchase their goods to, to, to sell on Amazon. And we're kind of promoting that through various different means. I'm quite a big fan of organic growth. So we focus a lot on building content, blog articles, videos, that kind of thing. So I want to ask this, in your career journey, what are the interesting lessons you can share with my audience? Like I said, I worked in manufacturing for five years and I think my career progressed quite slowly. It was always just a job to me, but I think when I found something that I was really into, Bitcoin, things changed a lot. My career developed very quickly. I got involved in some very interesting projects, met some really interesting people. So I'd always recommend to anybody to switch as early as possible to something that you really enjoy and like would be happy sitting at home, learning about and thinking about rather than kind of switching off and, and going home to kind of relax. And then also I'd always worked in larger organizations, whereas working in startups like Mitzi and Wire, I think you, you grow very fast as a person. You learn a lot of various skills. And I think it's um, a really good place to kind of accelerate career, accelerate the things that they're learning. And I'd always recommend at least once um, going to work for a startup or study on. Which comes to the main topic of the day. I want to talk to you about why China has recently banned ICOs and potentially some people have been talking about rumored the Bitcoin exchanges itself. So before that, I, I want to get your understanding of this. Can you briefly describe your definition of these three terms because I hear a lot of people talk about it but I think some of them have conflated these definitions together. One of them is cryptocurrency, Bitcoin and blockchain. Yep, no problem. I'm going to switch the order around. I would suggest talking about Bitcoin first before cryptocurrencies because I think Bitcoin is the source of all of these ideas. So uh, Bitcoin originally was a project to create a digital currency that didn't rely on any trusted third parties. And the thinking behind that came from, to some extent, a libertarian ideology, Austrian economics, in which people believe in using sound money, like a gold standard, where you can't have a central bank mess with the money supply. The intention of uh, removing third parties was to remove this central bank third party risk in interfering with that money supply. Basically, to achieve this end, a developer called Satoshi Nakamoto, which I'm sure all the listeners are very familiar with already, combined a number of different technologies, existing technologies, to create this currency called Bitcoin. And some of the, the technologies he used was um, things like crypt cryptography, uh, which already existed, proof of work, which had already been theorized by a guy called Adam Back, 
and then also uh, blockchain, which was really just a way of creating a structure that you could apply proof of work to. Basically, he came up with this idea. He launched it. Um, he was mining initially. There was a number of different what you would call cypherpunks who are kind of uh, very libertarian minded programmers. And a few of them joined the project and started contributing and playing around with it. And it just grew and grew and grew until it became a really serious phenomenon. And what, what happened then was with any kind of success, you can always expect to have people trying to emulate that success. And so then we moved into this new age of cryptocurrency where people started creating what would be defined as altcoins. So alternative implementations of Bitcoin in an attempt to kind of emulate the success of Bitcoin. So cryptocurrency, I think, is a very fuzzy definition now. It would be very difficult to kind of write down on paper what a cryptocurrency is. It's most basic. You could just say that it's a token and it's backed by some form of cryptography and usually uses blockchain technology. But then there's lots of other kind of things that definitely are defined as cryptocurrencies now, such as Ripple, such as IOTA, um, such as uh, Tether, which is a way of kind of tying US dollars or renminbi to, to a blockchain. And they use a combination of these different elements, but not all of them. I mean, for example, Ripple doesn't use a blockchain. It's very difficult to decide what it is. And then, for example, like if you're thinking about uh, traditional currencies like US dollar or the pound, they're also databases protected by cryptography. They exist almost entirely digitally. Like, could you define them as a, a cryptocurrency? I mean, I would say no, but like what I'm trying to get across is that there's no clear definition. But I think what you can say about them is mostly they're emulations, Bitcoin, and they borrow like most of the Bitcoin stack to as implementations. And their, their purpose in general is to become a medium of exchange i.e. money. Finally, then the uh, last term is a uh, blockchain. And that is something that's emerged from Bitcoin and has been promoted by big banks, large financial institutions, governments, and the media. There's this idea that you can extract blockchain from the Bitcoin model and use it on its own. But I think there's a lot of problems with that. And actually, blockchain is not particularly useful on its own. And um, just to define a blockchain is sorry essentially what it does is it's a way of um, structuring uh, transactions so you can apply proof of work to them if we have a network where multiple different transactions are going on what we do is we wrap them up into blocks and connect them together consecutively to create a transaction history it works on a similar basis to a database but what it does is create an immutable record which cannot be interfered with regardless of how hard you try one of the problems with these private blockchains is that it usually has like a blockchain admin, um, a centralized third party, which has control over the blockchain and can actually uh, go back and edit data and rewrite data. Yeah. Anyway, there's, there's a whole host of problems with blockchain on its own. And I think if anybody uh, studies any of these blockchain pilot projects that banks and uh, governments and, and various other organizations are implementing. Most of them have not produced any, any useful products, any useful platforms that businesses would be willing to um, run their businesses on. I think one of the reasons behind that is because the very fundamental idea behind a blockchain without a token, without proof of work uh, is broken. It also contradicts the spirit of the original Bitcoin paper, which is talking about decentralization, creating digital scarce digital currency, and the whole point of not having a central bank to actually control the, the flow of that currency, isn't it? 
Right. I mean, the, the blockchain was built with a very specific purpose in mind, and that was to prevent the double spend problem. So before Bitcoin, there'd been multiple different attempts at creating digital currencies which could be used online, also which emerged from these libertarian cypherpunks. And each one of them had failed because they had this double spend problem, and the double spend problem led them to needing a third party, basically a, a federated third party or a very, very centralized third party, which decided which coin went where. The problem with that is that this third party has way too much power. They can commit fraud themselves or they can be attacked by governments or hackers or whatever. And so all of these previous projects failed. What the blockchain allowed Bitcoin to do was basically in a decentralized fashion, make an objective decision on the history of transactions by applying proof of work, which is the mining process, which I'm sure everybody's um, seen on TV and read about in articles. Basically, what people do is expend energy to decide the order of these transactions. And if you're doing that, you need a, a data structure to apply that proof of work to. If you try to apply it to every individual transaction in a consecutive nature, it would be highly inefficient, completely unworkable. So instead, you have to package them up into batches, which are the blocks in the blockchain, and that makes proof of work possible. And this combination of technologies allows us to create a currency where you don't have the double spend problem, but you also don't have this trusted third party. And hence, in your opinion, what are the common misconceptions of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and blockchain? I mean, for one, I know that a lot of things can be decentralized using BitTorrent technologies. You don't really need a blockchain, but it seems that a lot of people will, are basically using blockchain as a form of technology, create the solution to find a problem. Right. And so I think you've definitely made one of the answers there already. I think one of the biggest perceptions that I like to head off is the idea that it's the crypto industry or cryptocurrencies is kind of the industry. But really, I think it's all a distraction from Bitcoin. If you look at the history of cryptocurrencies, specifically altcoins, all of them have a shelf life. They'll start at a very low valuation. They'll pump up to a very high valuation and then they'll die off. And I think one of the reasons for that is that cryptocurrencies as a kind of general concept is flawed. There's no reason to have a medium of exchange which competes with Bitcoin unless it is like five million times better. Basically, it has to be as much better as Bitcoin is better than fiat currencies to have any chance of competing with Bitcoin because Bitcoin already has the network effect. And if me and you are deciding to enter any kind of transaction, we're always going to choose the preferred medi uh, medium of exchange because we know if we go on to buy other products or decide to make any savings or whatever, we have this kind of standard that will be accepted. Whereas if we're using all of these different competing cryptocurrencies, altcoins, tokens, it will become very, very difficult for us to um, run our daily lives. That's um, a really big problem. I think when people are referring to the crypto industry, really what they're referring to is the Bitcoin industry and that all of these uh, crypto coin, uh, cryptocurrencies, altcoins are basically distractions, are doing interesting things from a technology perspective, but ultimately don't really serve any purpose apart from speculation, if you're into that. From your perspective in China, how do you see Bitcoin, blockchain and subsequently cryptocurrencies have evolved in China? I mean, you see blockchain projects like Neo and Quantum that have emerged. You've seen people doing different things with cryptocurrencies. What has it been like in China? So Bitcoin is, is huge in China and has been from very early days. I think China has a really well-established 
developer community, lots of engineers here, and um, a lot of people that recognize the value of the technology. As I mentioned before, China established three of the biggest Bitcoin exchanges here. Um, sadly, they've all just uh, recently been closed down, which we'll go into a, a bit later, I suppose. Also, all of the Bitcoins, well, most of the Bitcoins are mined in China. So most of the large Bitcoin farms, Bitcoin mining operations are established here. Also, almost all mining equipment is produced here, specifically by one monopoly called uh, Bitmain. They've done a really good job of identifying where the opportunities are in Bitcoin, the profitable opportunities in Bitcoin, and just diving in and taking lots of risk, throwing a lot of money and people at the problem and coming up with some some really great companies and really uh, great solutions. Then there was this kind of idea blockchain, which emerged from Bitcoin. I mentioned it earlier, kind of promoted by banks and governments because it's a lot more friendly and a lot less disruptive to Bitcoin. And what that resulted in was a lot of opportunities to run pilot projects and get bursaries and basically con money out of banks and governments to run these pilot projects for these these blockchain technologies. And what emerged was a lot of companies and a lot of individuals focusing on blockchain technology. I don't think we've seen any interesting solutions emerge from that. It's still going on, but has died down to make way for this new kind of set of scams, set of ways of getting money from very questionable technology, which is the ICO movement. And now a lot of companies that originally described themselves as blockchain companies are now pivoting to become ICO projects, uh, ICO companies. And yeah, I mean, ICOs until very recently, until the ban were gigantic. There was a huge bubble forming around it in China. I was in multiple different WeChat groups. There was people advertising them endlessly, a new, like a new one every day. And um, I think after the ban, things have died down a little bit, but still I'm in quite a few crypto groups and they're popping up all the time. I guess a lot of the rest of the world do not really recognize that China is actually pretty important to the whole cryptocurrency and Bitcoin's markets globally. Can you actually talk about that? Yeah, very important. I think number one is because this is a huge investor base. In China, you hear it a lot that people are limited in their options when it comes to investments due to the, the controlled nature of the economy here. I think as well, there's a kind of real gambler's spirit where people enjoy speculation and gambling. Obviously, it's a gigantic market all speaking one language. When it comes to Bitcoin or any other ICO or blockchain project, China's number one market to, to market to. So I think like, let's say Bitcoin, for example, a large part of why the price is so high today is because there is a lot of Chinese investors in Bitcoin. And that's not to say that everybody is just a speculator. I think from a lot of my Chinese friends and a lot of the people I speak to at the Bitcoin meetup, people recognize that Bitcoin has long-term value and is a kind of hedge against traditional currencies. But then also there is a lot of speculation going on here, which I'm sure is kind of also important to keeping the price up on many of these different cryptocurrencies. I always like to paraphrase one of Warren Buffett's famous quote, because the way I think about cryptocurrency, blockchain and Bitcoins is that the cryptocurrency is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine in the long term because I think the underlying technology and the ethos is actually building something very different that has actually allowed digital the transmission of digital properties in a scarce and secure manner which I think a lot of people do not appreciate why the Bitcoin revolution was so important right and I think a lot of people I'm going to use the word again are 
getting distracted by the idea that there are more interesting things you can do with blockchain, such as voting and smart contracts and tracking um, goods across the world and decentralizing databases, Dropbox on the blockchain. All of those are far less interesting than reinventing money. You think of how important money is to your daily life, to your business, how big an effect it has on the world, and like rebuilding that from scratch, from the ground up in a superior fashion is is really like transformative and i think people have to recognize that actually reinventing the database isn't quite as exciting as using brand new form of money or this this brand new medium of exchange i totally agree so i want to come to the more interesting part of the conversation before we begin i need to ask you what do you describe an initial coin offering to be or what we now call icos so i would say it's a brand new meme designed essentially to extract value from small investors for the benefit of the founders and the original investors in the project. So this idea of a um, digital token, an altcoin, has been going around for a very long time. As I mentioned earlier, from very early days since Bitcoin was proven to be a thing, probably starting around 2011, 2012, I think Litecoin was one of the first examples. And in the old days of these altcoins, which are essentially designed for um, the founders to extract more Bitcoins from the small investors. In the old days, they would basically just do a pre-mine, which would mean that they would not announce their project to begin with, and they would start applying their proof of work, the mining, to their blockchain and mine a whole chunk of coins before announcing the project, and then basically pumping the project before dumping their existing coins on all of these small investors for their own gain. Now, it's... It's even easier than that. All they have to do is uh, put together a white paper without actually building any product whatsoever and ask for money upfront, all of the money upfront from these small investors, crowdfund essentially stupidity, or at least crowdfund lack of awareness, and then start the blockchain with X tokens issued to all of the founders and all of the investors, and then start applying the proof of work to that. Or alternatively right now is a lot of these projects are not even building their own blockchain. They're just issuing these tokens uh, they're called ERC-20 tokens on Ethereum. And essentially what ERC-20 is, it's so well established now, it's essentially like the hello world of WordPress, but for Ethereum. And it's very easy to do. You can write a white paper with very, very kind of vague, but bold sounding claims. And what a lot of people are doing is just kind of buying into the story with the hope of selling to the to the greater fool. And I'm sure actually, I know a lot of people that actually buy into um, a lot of these stories. But essentially, that's what an ICO is. Its name itself is designed to sound like an IPO. But when you think about it, an IPO is only for well-established companies, which have already built a product and a following and have customers. Whereas an ICO is the complete opposite of that. It's basically zero product, zero customers, and just all promises and all of the incentives front-loaded at, at the beginning. But if we examine history, wasn't the dot-com bubble and bust due to that as well? It's exactly like an ICO before, but in, we call it the internet.com boom. So I think to some extent that was happening, but I don't think there's one example of a startup that emerged from the dot-com boom that was pre-funded. I'm pretty sure that all the successful companies, I mean, there's the, the obvious ones like Google and Amazon, all those guys, they all had customers, they all had a user base and a product that was working and it was good before they received their investment. But there were also companies like Webvan, Pets.com that basically was 
mooted on an idea, they re- raised a lot of money, and then they crashed and burned during the dot-com era. Right. Okay, yeah, so from that, ex- yeah, from that perspective, for sure. I, I think what was interesting to me from the ICO was actually it has been shown to be a, in, an alternative approach to raise funding for startups and what I call non-profit software foundations. I could think of the situation of if Linux, the operating system that today had won the battle of open source operating systems, where if the Linux Foundation had an ICO, there would be a real proof of value because Linux is now used onto every smartphone in the world. So what are the pros and cons of that perspective if you adopt it from that viewpoint? So my argument against that is you can't use fundraising as an excuse for implementing a model that fundamentally doesn't work. So yes, as a startup, you can raise a lot of money very quickly to go out and build things and pay developer salaries and stuff like that. But the problem is, does the token model itself make sense? So for ex- using your Linux example, if you had to buy a liquid asset on an open market just to be able to install Linux, and then for every operation made on Linux, you had to spend money to use, would Linux be as big as it is today? Like There isn't a chance in hell that would happen. The whole point of building a protocol um, and an open platform is that you need users to come on and use it as fast as possible, and it needs to be readily accessible. If you need to go and um, hold up a bunch of funds and then also go and engage with an exchange, go and purchase these um, tokens, to go on and interact with the protocol. And every time that you make an operation on the protocol, then you have to buy or sell some tokens. That's a completely kind of nonsensical model. And then another issue is that basically all you're using these tokens for is a medium of exchange within these protocols, within these programs. But we've already solved the medium of exchange problem in a digital fashion with Bitcoin. Your token is not adding any value to that process whatsoever. It was just an excuse in the early days to fundraise. So long term, uh, once the project is uh, viable and running and successful, it's far easier to just fork that code and introduce Bitcoin as the medium of exchange within that platform. And then immediately the model makes sense. It's fine. But all of those people that initially bought those tokens in the beginning lose out because their tokens are completely worthless all of a sudden. And if token buyers were aware of that in the early stages and it was presented as kind of crowdfunding research projects, then that would be fine. But that's not how these ICOs are being presented. They're being presented as worthwhile investments and they're being presented as if these platforms succeed like Linux or BitTorrent or any of these uh, projects, then you're going to become very, very rich because everybody's your tokens are going to be in demand. I mean, like bringing it outside, let's ignore these digital platforms, these decentralized platforms that people are building. Imagine that like every time that you wanted to buy a soda or a sandwich, there was a specific token, a sandwich token, and then there's a soda token. And every time that you wanted to buy one of these products, you had to go and get one of those tokens to buy that soda. That immediately, you know, that doesn't make sense. But all of a sudden, when it comes to these online platforms, these blockchains and stuff, people are kind of bought into the idea that we need an individual token for every single use case, every single application. Which I still today couldn't figure out why I need a file coin to actually have a file system on my computer. But of course, that's another question. Right. Yeah. And and as well, like this is going to annoy a lot of listeners, I know, because there's a lot of fans of Ethereum out there. But I think there was one tweet or definitely a quote from Vitalik Buterin, one of the founders of Ethereum, saying that, one of the reasons that they started the Ethereum project and it's all and the reason it has one of its own tokens was because the Bitcoin core developers were not interested in implementing this Ethereum technology on Bitcoin. They were too conservative. 
So essentially, he's admitted to the fact that this Ethereum token isn't actually completely necessary. It was only a means to, to start this project that he wanted to start. But it's completely possible that once Bitcoin implements things like sidechains, for example, that we could just implement Ethereum on a sidechain. And again, now we have a very reliable store of value with great network effects versus this low liquidity, very bad network effect token. I can say with almost certainty that Bitcoin would win out in, in that um, example. And again, it calls into a question this, this long term value of these uh, alternative tokens. So you're talking about like Ethereum, Quantum, all the different projects that actually cause themselves the alternative to Bitcoins because they don't have the network effects. So they might e essentially run into issues later. Exactly. Yeah. So I come to the most important question of the day. So in your opinion, why has the Chinese government decided to step in and ban ICOs outright? I think for some people it was seen as a surprise, but there was a lot of us within the Bitcoin community saying that this was on its way. Essentially, the whole phenomenon was getting out of hand. Investors were kind of hungry for speculation and founders who otherwise might have gone on to do interesting, productive projects were kind of drawn in by this very, very easy money. And just basically anybody with an idea, anybody that could put together a marketing team for an interesting sounding white paper and a flashy website was diving in and basically scamming a lot of kind of small investors and getting them to invest Bitcoin and Ethereum into projects that didn't have a hope. And it was getting really big. There was ICO conferences every week in Beijing, for example. Of course, at the end of all this, I don't think it's finished yet, but at the end of all this, you're going to have a lot of investors burnt, a lot of unhappy people. And that's exactly the kind of thing that the Chinese central bank, the Chinese government doesn't like. It could cause a lot of unrest. People are going to be asking why they weren't protected. I think they moved in quite swiftly and decisively to, to shut it down. So are there any precedents in which the go Chinese government banned something and subsequently relaxed it? I mean, I'm asking this question because I, I thank you for actually correcting me because I always have this misconception that actually China initially banned Bitcoin and subsequently relaxed it. And I think you pointed it out through me through the private conversation that that didn't happen. So would there be a scenario where the Chinese government actually relaxed the ICO ban at some point? So I was trying to think about this one. Um, and I can't actually think of any precedents of um, the Chinese government banning something outright before um, relaxing regulation later. Um, I think uh, there's lots of examples of industries that were allowed to grow naturally without any regulation um, before regulators moved in and started pruning, um, basically identifying where the, the biggest risks were and um, moving very quickly and decisively and closing things down. So I think uh, the P2P lending industry is a good example. That was allowed to carry on for a very long time. Uh, I think I, I attended a conference recently where a researcher was saying that 50% of the P2P lending companies were found out to be scams or went bust, which is like crazy numbers. Uh, and that was allowed to go on for years before um, very, very kind of strict regulations came in. Um, and then I think as well, the um, car sharing industry is another good example. Uh, DD and Uber were allowed to grow very, very quickly and very fast uh, before some very um, uh, strict uh, regulations came in. I think we're starting to see a similar thing with Bitcoin. Um, the uh, exchanges getting closed down took me by surprise. I hadn't expected it to be that universal, that wide ranging. But um, the announcements were very clear that Bitcoin is still legal, person-to-person uh, -person exchanges are still um, allowed, um, 
and um, as well, like kind of, uh, which it seemed like a soft touch. The the Bitcoin exchanges were allowed to operate, or at least the Beijing bit, uh, exchanges were allowed to operate till the end of October, which I mean leaves a little window of hope that um, some regulations will be introduced that will allow them to continue their business. Although I think that might be um, a little far fetched at this at this point. Um, but there is a chance that um, some regulations do emerge in the next few months or the next couple of years that allows um, new startups or new kind of state-backed uh, exchanges to emerge um, that allow uh, kind of uh, order book Bitcoin exchanges to, to start up again. Mm. So I actually have been following this pretty well. So are you saying that all the exchanges in China are going to close down? Like for example, OKCoin, Huobi or BTCC? Yep, that's that's how it's looking. Uh, BTCC has definitely been closed down, and um, I think they've got a very um, short window to to end their operations. Um, OKCoin and Huobi have been given a bit longer till I think it's around the end of October. Um, but yes, so all of uh, the Bitcoin exchanges are getting closed down. I think one of the big problems as well was the exchanges were engaging in a lot of um, questionable activities. So they were allowing um, lending on their platforms. Um, they were um, offering leveraged um, trading products. And I think all of those kind of set off alarm bells in regulators' minds. Um, and they just decided that enough was enough, that basically they've been allowed to grow and hadn't been responsible with their success um, and um, uh, time to close them down. Um, I think, uh, yeah, uh, let's see how it let's see how it um, uh, it, it plays out. The, uh, the hope, I think, was that OTC trading platforms would be allowed to exist. So there was a really awesome um, startup called Bitcan that offered uh, pricing information and also um, an OTC platform, which even had some form of price discovery, um, which operated similar to local Bitcoins, but perhaps even better. Uh, but that has also been um, asked to close down, which is, is fairly concerning. I thought it would be interesting to look at China internet history because in before the days of Xingna Weibo, pre that there were a couple of Twitter clones, for example, Fanfo and all that, and they were all shut down at one period. And it was only after that shutdown of all these first generation Twitter services, then Xingna Weibo came out and then suddenly it took off because Xingna uh, was willing to be able to abide by government regulations to control how the content is actually in the platform itself. The question for me, I think you have pointed it out, there may not be a chance for even a new generation of such Bitcoin exchanges would come out in China. Is that how I understand it to be? Yeah, uh, yes, it's totally possible. I didn't know that Weibo emerged out of that, that environment. But at the moment, like like I said, the exchange closure took took me by surprise. Right up until the official announcements, I thought that the Tyson and the Wall Street Journal articles were misleading, uh, but they turned out to be dead on the money. So at this point, I wouldn't like to predict how things are going to play out. My hope is that China realizes that Bitcoin is here to stay. It's very important technology and like Chinese Startups need to be kind of protected or at least given a set of rules that they can work around. Hopefully, something like the Weibo scenario will, will emerge. So what has the media picked up correctly or wrongly in discussing this ban of ICO and Bitcoin exchanges in China, in your opinion? I mean, 
I definitely won't bet against Tyson because I know that they are very, very accurate resources. But I mean, what are the things that you have read and you thought that actually was misleading in how it was being reported? I mean, you talk about it just now. Um, I think the closures were actually fairly well reported. Usually, I don't have a very good opinion of Bitcoin reporting within the the media, but this time it's fairly accurate and. I was really surprised by, there was a, a Wall Street Journal article by Chao Dun, one of the um, journalists here in Beijing. And like, even the messaging was kind of changed, like it felt like perceptions have changed more broadly in that she was saying that this would be a huge test of Bitcoin's resilience to centralized control. Does Bitcoin's decentralized nature allow it to continue and still be useful in the face of very strict regulations, or does it kind of spell the end for Bitcoin in China? One of the things that she mentioned was that if Bitcoin does prove resilient, it's going to be a risk for China in that it will reduce the amount of innovation and the amount of businesses that are built around Bitcoin, which could have bad effects and knock-on effects in the future, which I think that kind of conversation, that kind of a statement would never have been made one, two, three years ago when people were very, very skeptical that Bitcoin would be a thing that has any value. Is it a bubble? That kind of thing. What's the impact of Chinese cryptocurrencies who have now gone through an ICO in China? Are they all dead in water? So I was checking some of the prices before speaking to you. So I think one of the most successful and um, famous ICOs here in China is called, it was called AntShares, but changed its name to Neil. The price is bumping, like people are buying in still. No, I don't think we've seen the end of ICOs. I think, again, the problem with this is it's a decentralized thing that exists on the internet. You can operate it from anywhere. Founders can launch projects from outside of China and market it through the internet. Like the only way that this ICO thing is going to end is once people learn how risky an investment it is, like how questionable all of these projects are. That's the only thing that will kill it dead. At the moment, it looks like it's super healthy and things are going to continue. I think as well, like I heard from somebody else that was investigating this ICO market, was that uh, what they were looking at doing was doing pre-pre-ICOs. So allowing only accredited investors within China to invest in the ICO and then marketing the ICO outside of China to international investors. But then once the tokens launched, those tokens can make their way back into China via the internet. So there's all sorts of kind of loopholes and it's it's a really kind of like leaky model and very difficult to, to kind of pin down and control. So I think, yeah, we'll continue to see ICOs develop until people get burned. Well, it's almost like when you talk about this pre-pre-ICO, it's almost like doing second market in the US for private funded companies, right? Right, yeah. I, I mean, people will try anything to kind of get money out of people. And um, to some extent, people getting into pre-ICOs like or pre-ICOs can almost guarantee returns. So, I mean, from a cynical, selfish perspective, it's working and they're making money from it, like great. But I think personally, like people have to question the morality of it all, the ethics of misleading investors and making bold claims that you can't deliver on. So where do you see the movement of this whole cryptocurrencies market, whether it's Bitcoin, blockchain, or even ICOs heading in China? Is it going to go into a very stringent regulatory phase where a lot of the oxygen is going to be decided by the Chinese government? Or like you said just now, that there might be situations where people are actually still going to use the P2P components and start doing different things on it, and it's still evolving. So um, I can say for sure that Bitcoin isn't going anywhere. It's definitely here to stay and will continue to grow. I think Chinese investors, if there's demand, they will find ways of obtaining it. Like, I mean, for example, like getting money out of China is banned right now, but 
there is like a whole industry out there for underground banks moving money outside of China. I'm not endorsing that whatsoever, but like the, the, the point is that Bitcoin will, will continue to be here. I think ICOs, again, will continue to grow. They took a bit of a hit last month, but I think they're going to emerge and a lot of models will come out of that, that still allow them to continue business. And I use that term lightly. Yeah, I think like people will recognize increasingly the value of this technology. And if China becomes a really difficult environment to run Bitcoin businesses here, then people will move up, move elsewhere. Like Chinese entrepreneurs are really good at what they do. Like they've established some amazing companies when it comes to Bitcoin mines and Bitcoin exchanges, and they'll just move their operations elsewhere and kind of continue their innovation and, and building great businesses. Neil, it's really a pleasure having this conversation with you because I think that one of the things I really enjoy is that I actually learned a lot about some of the misconceptions and what it really looks like rather than what it has been perceived by, or being hyped out by the media out there. But in the closing, I want to ask you first, can you recommend anything that in the form of a book, podcast, movie that you have recently find interesting in your work or life recently? Yeah, so I would really highly recommend that everybody goes and checks out um, something called um, the Crash Course at the Nakamoto Institute. So the Nakamoto Institute is one of the best resources online for Bitcoin-related knowledge. And there's one particular page called the Crash Course, which is a collection of articles on Bitcoin, on altcoins. And I think for anybody that's looking for a fundamental understanding of what's going on, they couldn't do any better than uh, spend a few days reading uh, reading all those articles one by one. In the same spirit, I want to recommend to all my listeners to go and read the original Satoshi Nakamoto paper on Bitcoin. As a former theoretical physicist, skilled in the mathematics and sciences, it's a very well-written paper on cryptography and putting in the concept of decentralized economics into play. And it's something that actually made me believe that idea itself has a lot of legs and, and something that I have actually been believing in this whole cryptocurrency movement. So my last question to you, Neil, how do my audience find you? Um, so I'm quite active on Twitter. So everybody can find me there. Uh, my handle is at nwoodfine, but I'm guessing that a link will be posted in the podcast information, right? Yes, I will do that. Great. Awesome. Thanks for that. And your LinkedIn as well, right? <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn, yeah, for sure. I'll put the link up. So you can find me at bernardleong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and tune in, of course, Google Play and only in the US market. Tweet to me, recommend us on Overcast or Pocket Cast, or give me a five-star rating on iTunes. And of course, give me your most uh, sincere feedback. Once again, Neil, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks a lot. Cheers.